Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. I'm Danielle Rodoichin. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books, to art, to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. Today's guest is the American artist Sarah Morris. Known for her large, bright graphic works, which adorn spaces such as Gloucester Road Underground Station in London and the Palais de Tokyo in Paris, she has, since the inception of her career in the early 90s, also exhibited extensively throughout the world. Of her mesmerizing films, which focus on a specific place at a specific moment in time, she says, they are an excuse to travel, to meet people, and place myself in certain situations certain rooms and certain dialogues with people. I sat down with her on the eve of her major new exhibition at White Cube Bermondsey in London to talk about her work and her career. Sarah Morris, hello. Hello. Welcome to the show. Such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. We're here at uh, Five Carlos Place in Mayfair. First time you've been to this space, I believe. It is. It is. Although I've passed it many times. Yeah. And you're here in London. You're from New York and you're here in London um, as you have a show opening shortly at the White Cube Bermondsey. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time this show's published, it'll mm-hmm. be up and running. Um, can you talk me through a bit about what the show's about? Well, the show is, um, it, it covers all of the different facets of my work. Um, because I don't just make one type of thing. I, I, I'm obviously known as a painter, but I also make films. I also do what I call site-specific wall paintings, um, pieces that are meant to be in very specific architecture. And we're doing a, a large wall painting called Ataraxia, which is in the nine by nine by nine space as you first walk into the gallery on the left. And I'm also showing for the first time a sculpture that I just made. Why? So just going back to the wall painting. So this is going to cover four, all four walls mm-hmm. of this very large mm-hmm. room. Mm-hmm. And you've made it bespoke. So you're surrounded. Surrounded as you walk yes. in. And is it going to be a patterned, a repetitive pattern shape? It's, it's a, it's a, it's, I can't say it's a typical composition of mine. All of the work in the show are what I call sound graphs. They're all done off of speech um, recognition patterning um, software. Uh, It's all done using elements of my audio files. I make audio files almost hmm, nowadays every day. I make audio files, but I have on your phone on my phone. But I've also had special, you know, uh, recording devices when I shot the film. In Beijing in 2008, I remember making audio files for a number of the scenes, even in Los Angeles when I shot a film there in 2004 about the film industry. You know, I always, I always record audio, but what's interesting is the films are devoid of speech. Most of my films are stripped of human speech. Um, there's only a few films of mine that actually have speech in it. And um, so it's sort of funny that I would shoot film with no audio and then record audio on the side as almost like a memento 
of what really went down when I was shooting. Um, so these paintings are all based on audio files um, from a particular film that I just recently did um, in Germany. It's called Finite and Infinite Games. I'm going to be showing it at Y-Cube. And it's a speech that I crafted from this cult book called Finite and Infinite Games by James P. Kars. And it's really about game playing, game theory, psychology, politics. Basically, it just sort of covers everything. And it sort of divides human character into two different groups. And I always found this book really interesting. An assistant of mine gave it to me a long time ago. And I always thought I would do something with it at some point. I was really impressed by it. And I found it very strong text. And I cobbled together um, elements of that book and made a speech that I then cast this man named Alexander Kluge to read the speech inside of the unopened uh, Philharmonic Hall in, in Hamburg that opened last year. And so the speech sort of functions like a warning or a manifesto. And I'm showing paintings that uh, are sort of juxtaposed next to that, that film. Is that the first time you've worked in that way? Because I know in the past you've worked with um, coordinates and non-mathematical To me, it's equations. the same thing. It, the like same speech thing. is the same. Uh, you yeah. know, it, also, audiophiles provide an element of coordinates, too. They're, they're a, they become a mathematical file, and then that becomes the start of a mm -hmm. composition. So I always work with coordinates, whether it's in the paintings or the films. If you look at the films, the films are very specific places and times. It can all be mapped out and coordinated, you know, um, latitude and longitude and time-wise. Like I usually shoot at very specific times in a calendar year in a place. Like in Beijing, I shot during the Olympic ceremonies on August 8th, 2008 at 8 p.m. And the time around that in Abu Dhabi, which I'll also be showing at White Cube, which is a slightly millet. Is that mi the most recent one you did? Or? Um, actually, I think Finite and Infinite Games was after uh, I shot in Abu Dhabi. I, that was commissioned by the Guggenheim. That was filmed um, during their national day for the UAE, which is a very strange event that's quite militaristic. And um, it has a very interesting history, uh, that country, because it was sort of founded using the help of England a lot. I mean, British Petroleum really gave them the engineering and it was an actual contract um, that got that oil out of the ground. And uh, so I, I was really curious about what was going on there and also how they were trying to um, go into, make a foray into green energy, which they're doing. And Norman Foster designed this building called Mazdar there, which is a city. It's a green, green city on the outskirts of Abu Dhabi. So whenever I shoot, there's usually, shoot a film that is, um, there is, uh, a, I'm really cutting through a city, like a horizontal slice of like everything that could be going on at any place in time in that space. And of course, I think about it and research ahead. I scout several times before I do a shoot. I talk to hundreds of different people who I'm interested in or who somehow come to me about um, the process of making films. Because we always use a local crew and then my original sort of team that I How long go do they with. take to make? Well, when I'm actually filming, uh, films are usually pretty fast to shoot just because 
they're expensive to shoot. Um, so it usually takes place within like two weeks. Mm -hmm. But but the, all the prep time, all what I call the pre-production time, can go on for like a year or two, if not years. I mean, in the case of Finite and Infinite Games, I mm -hmm. could actually make an argument that that film was going on in my head for about five or six years. Wow. Before I made it, you know, because I was thinking about the book and thinking mm. about what to do with the book mm. uh, beforehand. And then just coming back to the exhibition, mm -hmm. um, the sculpture, you said it's the first time you've made a sculpture or an installation right. of that kind. Why did you feel like now is the time to do something like that? Because um, I recently did a New York subway. Um, it's actually the it's actually the studio subway. It's called 39th Avenue, and it's in Long Island City, which is right across the river from Midtown Manhattan. It's where Amazon was supposed to have been, but got rejected, oh, right? right? <laughs> and it's where a lot of artists have studios. Anyway, MTA asked me to do a subway station. I came up with this idea using glass, fused glass, uh, and laminated glass, and. I did two sides of the platform and you are sort of seeing the city through the glass and also people can see everybody, the commuters, on the platform. It's sort of really amazing piece. It was just installed three months ago and I worked with a Swiss company on that for several years, developing, um, developing the glass and developing the color and, you know, uh, realizing the piece. So when it goes back to this thing of why sculpture now, it is only through that relationship with that company did I have the confidence that I could achieve this other thing. Mm. Also, I have to say it relates back to the Philharmonic space because there were these light bulbs all throughout the Philharmonic space, which is designed by Herzog and de Meuron. And I could tell they were hand-blown. I could tell they were some sort of custom thing. So I asked Jacques, and Pierre, who did that? And then they sent me to this guy in Switzerland who, who did do it. So actually, it, it comes directly from the Philharmonic Hall. Wow. Yeah. yeah. This podcast has a specific format, which I'm okay. hoping you know about. Yeah. Five things, which okay. ties into five Carlos plays. What was something that you'd like to put in there that represents you? That represents me. Okay, first off, There'd have to be a pair of white shoes in the cabinet. It, they could be white. I mean, right now, my versions of white shoes are probably like white sandals, but I oftentimes have like a white pair of like dance shoes. You know the time, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Like uh, Capizio style, early 80s. You're wearing of, white shoes. Well, I'm wearing sneakers now, but, yeah. but I always have a pair of white shoes that usually travel with me that I walk all around the city with and that get completely filthy you know, from my meandering, because I do a lot of walking. Like it's part of my work to look around and to go through space and to see things from many different angles before I settle on the idea of what I'm trying mm -hmm. to get towards in, in the paintings and the films. And is that just in New York that you're walking or is no, it no, anywhere? No, so no, no, it, could be, it could be Los Angeles even, it could mm -hmm. be Beijing, it could be Munich. It could be, oddly enough, Abu Dhabi, which ends yeah. up like you're sort of treated as quite an oddity if you're walking around there. But I think that walking around something or through something gives you a perspective that you don't have if you're in a car. Um, so I think that's important. And also it's like, it's you, mm. you know? Have you read Will Self's, the writer, Will Self's I have read writing? Him. He 
does think he is very interested in walking and he's written yeah. about you know, well feet are important yeah true it's good to have you know good looking feet and good shoes <laughs> good shoes yeah. okay so a pair of white shoes we'd have yeah in there a and dirtied pair of white shoes they have to be dirty okay. yeah they have and to be a little dirty what was the brand did you say well i don't know they either probably yeah i mean it doesn't really matter it could be like capizio dance shoes it could be chanel sandals but they have to be flat do you ever wear heels yeah of course yeah, but not walking around the city <laughs> unless it's really late. <laughs> and then I just wanted to go back to um, your childhood and just understand a bit about where you're from. Yes. Um, what kind of childhood did you have? I know you were born in England. Yes. In the south of England, but you're American. Yes. Um, so tell us a bit about that. Well, I have an American mother and a British father, but I was born here, so I'm technically British. Uh, but I was on my mother's passport from the beginning so I was technically American but um, my parents moved back to the States when I was uh, a little uh, less than two so I really grew up in the United States although I have cousins here and uh, I had grandparents and uncles and aunts here uh, when I was growing up but um, so I grew up in Rhode Island in the United States and we would come here periodically or my grandparents would come over and visit us. What did your parents do? Um, my father is a research scientist and my mother is a nurse. Wow. Yeah. So I grew up with a lot of medicine, but, but I also grew up with this sort of critical, you know, not banter, but just cr critique constantly of, uh, you know, corporations, of broadcasting. I think it was part of that time, you know, that people were quite critical. Um, maybe, I can't say more so than now. People are quite critical now of what's going on, uh, too. But there was just a lot of critique going on in the house. Mm -hmm. And it was quite creative. You know, I did view both, I did view both my parents as being creative. Um, for, certainly science is a creative endeavor. You're constantly proving and disproving things and coming up with theories. And, and I had a little bit of a inkling of that. And then I also saw the role of art with my uh, mother's patients too. Mm. And that was interesting. Did you always, did you, did you think you'd always become an artist or was that, were you headed in some other well, direction? Well, there was a, there was like both my grandmother and my great grandmother had painted and there were, I grew up with sort of seeing their paintings. I wasn't necessarily that impressed with their paintings, but I thought, you know, it was part of the, you know, landscape of, mm. of looking around in my house. But I thought that was interesting. Um, I, I didn't, I, I, I knew that I was, I had uh, a creative force. I knew I would be an author, so to speak, of something, but I didn't know yet what form it would be. I didn't really know that until I was at college. Mm. Um, Brown University. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I also was here at Cambridge too. And actually it was while I was at Cambridge, more than when I was at Brown. Brown, there were a lot of creative people. What were you uh, studying at Brown? I was studying, I was in a department called um, Semiotics, which was quickly retitled while I was there. And it was retitled Modern Culture and Media. There were a lot of friends of mine who did film. And I was in their films. I would appear in their films. I didn't really have money to make films, so I, I was like in other people's films. Um, and um, the last year I was there, I, I did a, I printed a manifesto, which was sort of my version of like some form of art. 
but really it was the year that I was at Cambridge that I decided I was going to be an artist. Mm. So before that, when you did the manifesto and you contacted Jeff Koons, the mm -hmm. artist, to, mm -hmm. um, to contribute in some way? Yeah, he had done the Banality show in 1988 and I really thought that show was like killer. I thought that was just like such a, it, I mean, a paradigm sort of shift. I definitely recognized my, I think the year I got back from Cambridge, uh, I realized that I definitely, I went back to Brown after Cambridge okay. and um, I realized I wanted to work for him after I had asked him to contribute um, to the manifesto. What was it at Cambridge that made you move into that world? Well, that I, mindset? Uh, that's a really complicated story. Okay. I, I um, met a group of people that had a conversation group very interesting group of students. They did all types of things. One was a scientist, one was an anthropologist, um, one was in literature, one was like an architect. Anyway, we used to meet and talk and I used to go and see shows with some of them. I mean, I definitely remember seeing uh, the Neo Geo show that was at Saatchi's. I definitely remember going to a few parties in London and meeting Alan Jones, who I, of course, I knew his work. I, you know, I remember meeting the Pentagram group. Um, I was exposed to like, I was exposed to people through that group of people. And, uh, and then I was also reading a number of books that year uh, at Cambridge that they weren't part of the curriculum at all, but I was reading, I was reading a book um, uh, called The Anti-Aesthetic by Hal Foster that sort of, I realized that a lot of the things I had been thinking about were actually taking part and playing out in the art world. And that really excited me. And then I was also meeting these people in London. So it, it seemed like it all seemed sort of possible. Mm. Yeah. And Jeff Koons was first time at Brown or second time? What do you mean first time at Brown? With the manifesto when you got in touch with him. Well, I got in touch with him because I thought he was really interesting and, and I wanted to meet him uh, mm. in a way that was, uh, I wanted him to contribute, but also I wanted to meet him. And then after I met him, I realized he was mainly producing in Europe at that time. You know, he didn't have a studio. It's not like nowadays where he has a whole studio and tons of people working for him. He had nobody working for him. He was really just in a BMW 7 Series driving around Germany sort of making work. And I thought I would just invent a role for myself and create a job for myself with like this sort of dream job. And uh, he accepted my proposal and that's sort of uh what i did what to was support the, what was the job title you gave yourself um i don't know what I, there was no exact word for it it was like <laughs> i was like right hand you know I, yeah. I did everything i sort of saw everything and i did everything and it was an interesting time because i also was at the whitney independent study program which sort of lets in about 10 people a year still still active and there's been a lot of artists that have gone through that program. And so there was this sort of um, balancing act that I had to do between, you know, um, basically my peers and also uh, this job that I had where I had to, you know, I had to communicate and show up and do some research for, even though he was a, pretty much an absent boss in a way. It was like it really was an ideal job um, at that time anyway. Yeah. Nice. Now going back to the cabinet. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> What's the next thing? Okay. Um, well, interestingly, speaking enough about Jeff, I, I've always worn like, I'm not wearing one today, but I usually wear like a chain necklace. 
And um, I once gave, Jeff was so fascinated by this, he actually did a painting of this necklace. But I do think about the chain a lot. Uh, I love chains. Um, I really think of my experience in life as a chain. I think of cities as a chain. I think of, I think everything's interlinked. You know, the way you see and experience things, if you see it that way, it sort of changes how you're experiencing it. And I think a chain is a, is a good symbol of that. So I usually have like a silver chain. And your artwork can be seen as a chain yeah. as well. But yeah, the, paint yeah the, the paintings I really do see as like expanding beyond the perimeter of the paint. I mean, your eye does that. Mm. It completes pictures. It's like your mind completes pictures all the time as we're talking and telling stories, but your eye also completes pictures as you're looking and as you're thinking about things and um, connecting things and drawing, again, th these lines of perspective. Mm. So a silver chain. Sounds nice. Um, I think we can find that. I don't think we're going to use your silver chain to put in there because I'd be too worried about yeah. taking it away. Um, My silver chain I did buy in London. Oh, did you? I did buy Why did during you buy the it? Well, I don't know if I should disclose this because it sounds like it sounds possibly too posh, but I bought it at Hermes, an assistant of mine assisted that it looked like so much like me. I think it was designed by Pierre Hardy. It's a very beautiful chain. I don't actually, I mean, yeah, I did take it on this trip. It's back at the hotel. Wait, but that's, is that the Jeff one that Jeff Koons? No, the one that likes. Jeff, the one that Jeff used for the painting is, is, a, is a really cheap version of that. That, that was more like a 1991 version <laughs> of my chain uh, sort of development. Um, but he did give that back. It's probably in my jewelry box. Um, and after you, um, and then at some point, I think in the mid nineties, you, you rented a studio in, in New York, Midtown, and mm -hmm. you became very earlier than the mid nineties. I think it was 93 that I had a studio in Times Square. Yeah. Uh, 42nd street. Yeah. Was it? There were um, a lot of artists who had studios there. There was, um, Christian Markley was there. Rita Ackerman was there. Um, another friend of mine, Ricardo de Oliveira was there. There was Jack Pearson was there. It was Andy Warhol's favorite, apparently his favorite building. And they cast the building in Slaves of New York. It was a, it was a building that was slated to get either knocked down or renovated when this development of Times Square happened. So you didn't get a lease. It was like maybe $250 or $300 a month, but you didn't have a lease and you didn't know when it was gonna end. But the landlord, he loved artists and you knew he would give you enough time. And there were these great studios that faced south right on 42nd Street. It felt like you were in the epicenter of the world. So it was a great place to be. And there were obviously a lot of other artists around. So it was interesting and mm. people would, bring curators around and um, occasionally there would be a gallerist, but not really, uh, not many gallerists came to that studio, a mm. few. And it was obviously a really um, productive time for you. And it was. Do you think that um, the sense- I also met a lot of British artists at that time. Um, I, w I was curating shows in the 42nd Street building. It, the, the address was 233 West 42nd. And around that same time I met Gary Hume and Sam Taylor Wood and um, Gregor Muir. And we decided that, I don't know, one night in New York out at drinks, we decided that we would give them the 42nd Street space and that they would curate a show of ours. 
in London. So the first time I came to London was actually not to show with White Cube. It was, it was probably in 1994, and it was a show that they curated called Lucky Kunst. And it was on Silver Place, which was an old floral florist shop in Soho. And somehow they had the keys, and we did a show there. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was a really productive time. Mm. You have to remember there was really no... There wasn't much of an economy of art at, in the early 90s in New York, at least not for young artists. Mm. Um, you know, it was like Gulf War. There was a recession. and um, But there was tons of activity. Everybody was very busy. I mean, I had a lot of peers in New York and obviously in London who were extremely busy. Mm. Although my London peers were definitely more financially successful. Like they seemed, there seemed to have be already a market here. Yeah. Yeah, it was a different circumstance than uh, New York. Mm. Um, back to the cabinet. Okay. I want to make sure we get all, all five in yeah. the time we have with you. So what was, what was another thing you'd like to put in there? Okay, I would like to put in Charles and Raheem's Powers of Ten. It's one of my favorite little films that they did for IBM. You have to remember IBM was like extremely, like way more than Apple, definitely way more than Google. It's like, it's tragic what happened with IBM because IBM was so on top of things. Like <laughs> IBM basically funded Charles and Ray Ames to do pretty much whatever they wanted to for like a huge period of time. So they did this film using satellite technology and also math, uh, which was done on the computer. They did this film where they go from this romantic couple of uh, this, this couple having a picnic on the side of, uh, in, in Chicago, and it zooms out and goes out into like, you know, past our universe, at powers of 10, it goes, you know, it, I don't know exactly what the math is, but it goes like 10 to the power of 10, it goes way out, then it goes back in, then it goes into the gentleman's hand, who's like possibly holding her leg. You know, it's quite edgy for nowadays, but, and it goes back into the in, into the cells of his body, and it's really it goes into the mitochondria, and it's super interesting because it goes you know it deals with scale, it deals with computers, it deals with space, the relational elements of everything, and it, it deals with perspective, and it's a, it's a beautiful film, mm -hmm. and I and I also love the music, which I think is done by Elmer Bernstein. Um, or maybe that's the voice. I can't remember. But anyway, it's a, it's a beautiful film. What a very mean? romantic film, by the way. Um, what do you mean by too edgy for t by today's Well, it's standards? just like, it's a couple. And I believe like either she has his her hand on his upper thigh or he has his hand. I think it's her hand on his upper thigh. Yeah, let's just think. Do you think IBM? It, do you think I mean, I'd like to see Apple do something with art. You know, like I haven't seen that yet. They sort of think they're artists. It's like a different time now. It's not, um, you know, it's not. I mean, they did do something with art. They did come up with a music platform and all of that. But they haven't really done anything using artists. Mm. You know, or backing artists, What's visual the, artists. I mean, yeah. They what's the thing they announced recently where they have like Oprah and Jennifer Aniston? And well, they're these, trying. They're gonna. They're gonna come up with their own platform for TV. It. Like, like TV. all of these things. These are these are all good. But like, it's interesting that mm. IBM was so ahead of its mm. time, but then they completely somehow 
missed the boat, yeah. you know? But they, but they were so ahead. Um, um, how would we represent this movie in the cabinet? Would it be a you could be VCR? A VCR? Yeah, you should be just playing it on a phone or you know. Yeah, that would be apt. That would be apt. It's interesting you mentioned the the music because yeah, the music is so good. It's like beep 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 beep. But that's like little different beeps, and it's like it's like sort of it's more deep beeps. By the way, deep beeps. It's more like my it's more like my voice, like deep beeps. Um, that sounds to me a bit like, I like, I, I really like the music you commissioned for your yeah, films. Yeah. Um, and some that's, that's, that's quite, all done by Liam Gillick. Yeah. It's all quite, um, is that your former husband? Yeah. Um, it's quite beepy. Uh-huh. That reminds me almost, when you said IBM, I, I immediately thought of some of the music. Well, I love computers, even though I'm like, you know, obviously I'm complaining about Apple because it has become the bane of our existence. Yeah. But, um, you know. I would like to see them be a bit more radical, um, but yes, mm. computers are. I mean, it has completely revolutionized mm. not only music but how we think about information and how information is transmitted. And I'm thinking about that constantly too. Like to me, if you really look at the history of the 20th century art form, you really have the hyper subjective and then you have the objective yeah Mm -hmm. and obviously you can straddle the two but for me i've always been drawn or attracted to uh maybe it's the science background i don't Mm -hmm. know but i've always been attracted to this um seemingly um objective version of the world of course nothing is objective we know that but like you know there is the illusion Mm. Which, which is why I love the Charles and Ray Ames film because it has this it has this balance of being very objective because it's literally a math equation that it's doing with camera work but at the end it's a couple having like a romantic picnic on the side of Lake Chicago do you use computers or all any the computer programs for your work all the time mm. like non nonstop, like all of the um, I mean at one point I didn't I did all of the compositions using photographs and, and, and math and tape, whatnot. But now I do, um, all of the paintings are done using a program called Illustrator, which I'm sure you know. And um, I build up the composition of the paintings always in black and white, and they're scaled up. They're done on a scale of one to 10 from the real, and then we blow them up in the studio and we use just pencil and mm-hmm. 3M tape. You know, it's quite, it's quite rudimentary. I mean, it's probably like the way an auto body shop functions. Mm. It's actually, bizarrely, even with my love of computers, it's, it's bizarrely quite physical and very demanding and sort of exhausting, making the paintings. Yeah, do you have a, how do you work? Do you have assistants? I have a couple of assistants. I try to keep it very small because I don't really like managing people, I've realized. no, there's no offense of, to anybody specific, but it's just like, I prefer this, a small team um, to communicate with. Uh, so I have, I have probably like two or three painting assistants that help me stretch canvas, help me prepare the canvases, who do the math, who prep all the files and, and help me blow it up. And usually you need like at least four hands for, getting the levels correct on, on those paintings. 
And do you ever think about um, robots or computers making art? No, definitely not. No, that's no. And why is that something that you can't because see? Because I love the contradictions of the human mind and human, you know, it, I mean, contradiction is what makes things operate. You know, it's like what makes things interesting. It's not just about flow. You know, it's like what makes a city interesting is the people and the narratives and the disjunctive narratives and also the planning of a city, also how things go wrong and how they are not planned properly and how, you know, the mistakes. Basically, if you really look at it, you know, I do think my work deals a lot with the concept of failure, uh, failure politically or failure socially. Um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I mean, you can look at the Los Angeles film like that. You can look at the Beijing film like that. You can look at the Abu Dhabi film like that. You can look at the Robert Town film like that. Um, how, how, can you give me an example of, of, a, of, of one of those films being a comment on that in terms of politics? Well, I don't think the film the industry is actually a big success. I think it's pretty much, you know, it is a bit of a failure. It's, it's nowhere near what it could be. I, I also think Apple is nowhere near what it could be. You know, I'm not just singling out one thing. Yeah. It's like, you know, um, it's all of these things have pitfalls. It's not all just great success. So the films that you make then are in some way a comment rather than just an observation. For example, yeah, if you take something like I can see what you mean by something like Los Angeles, or you're talk where it's. Well, the production of the human ego as a as a as a as a front for fiction, um, obviously. I mean, I know people in that industry. I'm friends with people in that industry. It's not, you know, it's not all it's cracked up to be. You know, it's at the end of the day, um, you know, some really great films are being made, but there's a lot of trash too. Mm -hmm. So, and that's the same in any industry. It's not. That's not unique to the film. That's not unique to the film world. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly not unique to America. There's trash everywhere. There's trash but trash everywhere. is good. <laughs> we like trash. Um, it's necessary to have a bit of trash. What about the cabinet? What else are you putting okay. in there? So we did a necklace and we did a shoe and we did a Charles and Reims film. Um, do the things in the cabinet have to relate to fashion at all, or they can be anything? They can be anything. Anything. Literally okay. anything. So I would also say, I would definitely say um, it could be anything. Anything. Um, I would definitely say a watch. It could be a stopwatch. It could be actually my watch. But um, I think... The watch you're wearing now. Yeah, it could be the watch I'm wearing now. I think things are very time specific. You know, there's no way to have something be truly abstract or truly, um, you know, without being, you know, loaded with the present. It's not, it's just not possible. I don't really believe in the idea of like, I mean, I do believe that there are some universal themes that humans are interested in repetitively. But I don't really believe that art specifically is universal. So I think it's important to remember that. I think it's important to remember when you're living, wh where you are, where you are, what coordinate you're at, and when you are there. Because mm. everything's very specific. 
you really can't get away from that. And I think that's a good thing. I think, you know, people, people who sort of talk about things being really universal, I'm usually quite skeptical of. What about this idea of, do you, how do you feel uh, in terms of your, your art and how it's, has it changed over time, do you think? What, do you think the I way think it's it been has, perceived has But, has you changed? know, I'm not the type of artist who makes a different thing every time. You know, there are friends of mine who do, like, different work every time they do a show. And I'm, I think there's always going to be artists like that, and it's always really interesting. But then there's another form of work where it's more... Um, it, it has this element, going back to the computer, it has an element of serial production, more slow shifts that become major shifts as you watch it over time, a little bit like Charles and Williams's film, Powers of Ten. Like you suddenly realize you're in outer space, but you were just a moment ago, like outside of Chicago, mm -hmm. up on like 30,000 feet, and then you're sort of going out. I prefer more gradual shifts where um, that you're just not so cognizant of change. Hmm. Because I prefer, I always wanted to make, I mean, when I was trying to think about making work, one, one important studio visit I did really early on is I went to the studio of Roy Lichtenstein, and um, he was making his living room series at that time, and uh, which are these beautiful interior paintings of living rooms, which the paintings would probably end up in a living room, but it seemed to be, a form of institutional critique, but at the same time, just so beautifully uh, executed. And I remember I always wanted to have this element of, I mean, you know, there's a progression in Lichtenstein's work, but, but at the same time, they're just made up of little dots, you know, and he had that right from the beginning. So I, I always wanted to um, be on that side of the tracks in a way. Mm -hmm. Out of all the shows you've done, which one are you most, mm, which one sticks in your mind the most? Oh, that's such a hard question. <laughs> because like even, you know, I just did a big sort of quasi retrospective in Beijing last year, actually one year ago at the UCCA Beijing, which was a fantastic show. And I did an enormous wall painting that was like nine meters high by like 50 meters long and they showed every single one of the 14 films and they showed a lot of paintings and drawings and like that was a fantastic show. It was an amazing show and I got to show some of the films even on this new technology, this LED technology that I asked for. That was a great show but then I also, like that, the memory of that show is no different than like the first show I did at White Cube which was in 1996 and I remember thinking London uh, I was so excited to come back to London. It seemed very different than I had remembered it. And ironically, I thought I was coming too late, but it was actually right at the time. Yeah. Um, so again, speaking about time, you know, definitely a watch is necessary mm. in the cabinet. Because timing really is everything. Being in the right room and, you know, being in the right room, meeting the right people and uh, making sure that you're like highly aware of your context is something I try to think about, but oftentimes we're very like. What do you not... mean by aware of your context? Well, like be aware of where you're at. Yeah, be aware of who you're around and be aware of who's interesting and who's not. You know, like don't, try not to, uh, yeah, try not to get lost, you know? 
it's a good idea to just you know be be sort of directed. Um, I've tried to I've tried to do that pretty much. I mean, it's hard hard. Obviously, you make a wrong turn here and there, but it's important to know where you're trying to go. Hmm. How did your current show at White Cube at Bermondsey come about? The current show came about just because I, the last show I did in London. I mean, I've done four or five. Sh how many shows have I done with the gallery? Let's think, one, two. Three, four, five. This is my sixth show, I believe, at White Cube. So it was just time. Mm. Like, you know, especially after I did this big show in China, it was sort of the right time to do another show in London. Also, with the amount of development going on and this sort of. In, t in terms of the city? Yeah, mean? in terms of the city, in terms of just the global reach of London, like it is such a different city than it was in 1996. It's shocking, you know? So, uh, in a good you know, way, do you think? Yeah, I think in a good way. Yeah. Mm. I mean, obviously, one can have critique too, but yeah, I think in a good way. Mm. Um, what, and and, how, and do you, how do you think the art has changed between that time when you first? came to London and now do you think it's more political less political I don't know about more or less essential? political but it's definitely more international which I think is great you know when I first came to London it was really like I was an oddity that I was an American hanging out in London it was an oddity that Jay was showing an American artist he was one of I mean there was a couple of galleries that perhaps did that but it was unusual and definitely to even be living here was even more unusual. You know, it was it was a it was really um, a very local homegrown scene of really great talent. But what's happened since then is really an internationalization of the gallery scene here, the museum scene here. I mean, Tate was built. I mean, it's it's been a very large growth. What's the final thing you're going to put in the cabinet? We've had four, right? Mm. So we need one more. Okay, final thing in the cabinet. How about a white suitcase for traveling? Sounds because good. travel's an excuse. Travel's a, a form of learning for me, but it's also an excuse. It's like Warhol used to say that the magazine interview was an excuse to meet people. I would say my films are also an excuse to travel and meet people and, and place myself in certain situations. Um, place myself in certain rooms even, or place myself in certain dialogue with certain people. Um, and they're not always great scenarios to be in. You know, there's been times where I've written out a coordinate, you know, my, if there's a screenplay or a treatment for my films, it's just literally, it's extremely minimalist. It might be just like, you know, the Bird's Nest, 2008, August 8, 8 p.m., you know, the VIP section. I don't know what's going to be there. I don't know what is going to transpire. I just, it's like literally a coordinate. So sometimes you can find yourself in a really amazing situation. Other times you can find yourself in an incredibly repulsive situation. You don't really know. I mean, that's the dynamic of my films. They're not, they're not acted. Everything is cinema verite. Everything is as it's already happening. So um, th that type of engagement or form of engagement with reality is something that I love because you never really know what's going to happen. And you have to deal with it. 
<laughs> you know, it's sort of like a cha it's a bit of a challenge. Uh, but I'm just saying, like, you know, as an artist, you're not always dealing with everything that you want to have to happen. Sometimes you're dealing with like issues of compromise or you're dealing with somebody saying no or uh, you get to a certain situation and you find out it's not what you expected or the person is actually not who you thought they would be or they're worried about their makeup and you're not worried about you know like I don't shoot films the way uh, most people shoot films I don't use I typically don't use lights and of course I don't use any makeup I just use whatever is going on. So if somebody is concerned with those things, they'd have to already have addressed them and be thinking about how they're gonna represent themselves. That's great. Sarah Morris, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. That was an episode of The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. You can find more episodes and more about Five Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website and you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion, at Matches Fashion Man and the hashtag Five Carlos Place. Thanks for listening.